advocacy is an obligation of every Mm -hmm. single occupational therapy professional. So if you look and say, well, I don't have time for any advocacy in my role. I I have all these things I'm doing. I challenge you in two ways. One, you probably are advocating. You just don't realize it. You're advocating in a a different way or in a very Mm client-centric way. So I would challenge you to find the ways that you are advocating. But two, if you can't, then I would challenge you to find a way too, because as an occupational therapy professional, it's your obligation. Advocacy is in our practice framework. You need to know how to do this and you need to integrate it into your day-to-day. Hi, I'm Clarice Grody and welcome to the Amplify OT podcast. I'm an occupational therapist by trade and a policy wonk by choice. This podcast is here to help you survive and thrive in the U.S. healthcare system through a better understanding of policy, advocacy, and value-based care. So let's dive in. Well, welcome everyone to the Amplify OT podcast. This is Clarice, your host. I am so excited to introduce Allison Stover as my guest on today's podcast. If you think her name sounds familiar, you are right. Allison is the current president of the American Occupational Therapy Association, or known as AOTA. In addition to her new role as AOTA's president, Allison is an associate professor in the Department of Occupational Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh, is AOTA board certified in pediatrics, and she owns a private outpatient pediatric practice. She is one busy lady. I'm so glad that we finally get to meet and talk. And after hearing you speak and looking at your bio, I can tell you're definitely a person who's after my own heart. Uh, It's so great to have someone as passionate about advocacy and using OT to change our healthcare system for the better, be the leader of AOTA. And so obviously we'll talk about advocacy here in a bit because after all, this is Amplify OT podcast, but I want to start and give you an easy question. So I want you to tell me why you are an AOTA member. Oh, why I'm an AOTA member. This is great. So I think this has changed a lot throughout my occupational therapy journey. I first became an AOTA member as a student, as many of us do. We, we enter through the student route. And then as a new practitioner, I maintained my AOTA membership because, you know, I really I was kind of scared of what I didn't know. I knew that we had used it so much in school that I thought, Clearly, this is something that I'm, I'm going to have to refer back to and use in practice. And it was really there that I learned a sort of new way of how I was going to use that. So there's a lot of things that you are trained in as an entry-level clinician through our OTA and OT education programs, but there's no way that we could truly encounter every type of situation or experience that's going to occur. And so I found myself often in places where I was experiencing something that I hadn't learned about in OT school, that I didn't even know where to begin or how to start to address it. And so I would just call. Yes, I've been at this a little bit longer than than um, <laughs> we when we just constantly searched a website, but I would call the office and there was someone who was willing to help me navigate through these situations and experiences. And so as a new clinician, this was incredibly helpful to know that I sort of always had occupational therapy learning at my fingertips. Then as we started to progress and I realized that it was not just an association that I could take from, but an association that I could give to, 
I really discovered that how I know what to advocate about, how I know how to join my efforts in advocacy, how to be an effective advocate, and how to really influence how the world essentially understands and utilizes the services of occupational therapy all really stem and come from AOTA. And so I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be a part of the advocacy efforts. I wanted to be a part of the messaging of occupational therapy. I wanted to be a part of how people understood who we were. And then that sort of facilitated that next step in my journey of beyond what are those new situations, but now really what are the things that that I want to grow in and give back to? And then finally looking at it now, it's my home. It's my professional home. It's where I go back to my AOTA Thanksgiving, otherwise known as conference. <laughs> and I get to see that family that I haven't seen for all year. It's the place where I know that I can get meaningful continuing competency It's the place that understands the unique challenges that I experience as an occupational therapy professional. And whether it's just being able to provide a listening ear and someone who can empathize and experience the same, or someone who can really problem solve in a way that only those of us who truly live occupational therapy know how, it has become my professional home and and now at the place where I feel lost without it. Yeah. And that obviously leads us into kind of why you decided to be AOTA president, but I definitely agree. Occupational therapy, I think a lot of it comes down to whether or not we view it as a job or as our profession. And this job is this kind of thing that you just kind of transiently move through. You don't really care if it's there tomorrow. I always say that like when I was at American Eagle, I didn't care if American Eagle hung out for another 10 years, but I care a lot whether or not I can be an OT in 10 years. And so I think that's this idea of this profession, that there is that idea of community. And I love that you call it your OT Thanksgiving. <laughs> that's a really great name for conference. Yeah, it's your it's your Thanksgiving in, in March and April. So I think that's a big part of it. And so you've talked a little bit about how you kind of talked about now that you don't just see it as something where you get resources from, but something you contribute to. So what was the thing that made you say, I want to be AOTA president. I want to take on this role. You know, I think that I really viewed it as an experience and an opportunity to continue to give back to the profession, but also to really continue to understand occupational therapy at the roots all the way through to its its very extending branches. So I really thought about the idea earlier on a number of years ago about how do I use this incredible lens that I have been gifted with this occupational therapy lens? How do I use this to make the world better, right? So that every opportunity, every encounter, every barrier that happens in my life or in the lives of those around me can be improved by this gift of this occupational therapy lens that I have. And so Early on, I really found that one of the easiest ways to do that was through state association, which for me for the past 15 years has been Pennsylvania, you know, through state association membership and and participation and AOTA membership and participation. This was a way that, that I could do that. I could use that lens in a meaningful way. My journey in AOTA leadership really started through our special interest section and being able to facilitate conversations and connections and networking, because that at that point in that mid-level career state, 
that's what I needed. I needed those higher conversations. I needed those networking opportunities and abilities. Mm -hmm. And so I really saw that in that position, um, that was sort of pre the restructuring of our our SISs. And we still had one called administration and management, special interest section, we called it AMSIS. And I really (laughs) saw through AMSIS that leadership within these associations is the opportunity to be a bridge, to be a facilitator and a facilitator between the profession itself and what that looks like and means for those of us who are privileged enough to carry out the profession day to day. And so moving into other roles of leadership, I sought opportunities to do this within my state association, within AOTA, and I really sought to do it in organizations outside of occupational therapy professional associations. You know, how could I bring this lens, this problem-solving ability, how could I bring this to other places of leadership and really demonstrate our value? And what I found is that you continuously quench for the next step in that. When that becomes part of your journey, you're constantly looking for, you're thirsting for, (laughs) well, okay, I've been able to move forward and facilitate opportunities like this or I've seen incredible results emerge because of this position that I had the opportunity to serve in. So I thought about it and AOTA presidency became a goal because I thought, well, here's a really national bridge where I could really facilitate how do we bring all the messages of the occupational therapy community to a really loud, broad, far-reaching audience. And I also thought, I've had the great experience of learning about occupational therapy and how that has impacted the changes in my own journey and identity as an occupational therapist. And what better way to continue to learn about my profession and about all of those who are members of it than by serving in this role and and really having the great experience of continuing to evolve my own occupational therapy journey by hearing about What defines the identity of occupational therapy to so many others? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I love that, you know, you got started in the SISs because that's how I got started as well. Right after graduating, I applied for an SIS position like literally two months after. I didn't feel like I met any of the qualifications. And I think that's a very common experience for any of us who've ever applied for a leadership position or something else. And I think there's always this misconception that you just like wake up and all of a sudden you're ready you're ready to be a leader. You're ready to be AOTA's president. Like you just wake up one day and you're like, I am ready for this. And I don't feel like it ever happens that way that you, you just take a shot in the dark and you hope because you won't get a yes if you don't apply. You know, and I love that you talk about building out through the SISs, building up through your state associations. Cause I always say that state associations, frankly, are one of the lowest barriers to entry in terms of getting a leadership position. There's not always a lot of competition. It's a very local you know, network, so you don't have to know sometimes all the national stuff just really within your state. And so I think it's a really great way to get involved and shows that there is a journey and a process. And so for anyone who feels that they don't know enough to be potentially AOTA's president or to be a leader, it shows that you do, right? You have all the skills. It's just about applying them in different ways and then looking for those opportunities to build your skills because no one wakes up and is automatically a leader. It's all, it's all a learning process. And I mean, there are still days I wake up and say, wow, not that I can't do this, but that 
am I designed or, or what kind of training and leadership have I had that would make me eligible for this role? And, you know, there's a lot and it's not a formal training, right? It's the idea that I know what it's like to sit across from a client that I know that occupational therapy can have a profound effect on their participation, but we just keep hitting barrier after barrier to the access, right? I know what it's like to figure out how to get my kids up, ready for school, on the bus, with lunches packed and homework done, and still be dressed and ready myself to get out to that first (laughs) client and that I'm there. small feet. Yeah. At least 15 minutes ahead of time to make sure that I've set up for the session for the day, right? Like the leadership comes from the idea that I'm a human and I know how to facilitate participation. And so no one ever feels ready and that's okay. It's not about feeling ready. It's about feeling passionate, recognizing that this profession is a calling and that it is something that really and truly brings meaning into the lives of everyone fortunate enough to interact with it. And if you hold that inside, then being a human will get you to that leadership place that you need to be. Yeah, I think that's so important to talk about and growing into that role. And we all end with different experiences than what we start out with. And I think that leads us next into kind of discussing, I, I know that there's been a lot of discussion around the role of AOTA's board and what is the role. And I think it can be very confusing, even with someone like myself who feels fairly familiar with AOTA. You know, we see the board, we see the RA, we see the executive group of AOTA. So what exactly is the role of AOTA's president and of the board? Because I think sometimes we feel like they have overarching control over the entire association. But from what I hear, that's not always the case. It's not, right? Um, The the board is elected, as is the president. So there's a voting process that goes into that. And really, we are there to be representatives of the profession so that AOTA as an organization can continuously be a representative of what the profession is, what it needs, where it wants to go, and where are the gaps that need to be filled? And then where are the places that our voices need to be heard? So it's really thinking about the idea of being a representation of our profession. You know, it's funny because I think about the ways that children understand terms like president, right? And so when we established our outpatient practice, our clinic, my husband is the president of Capable Kids. <laughs> right? And then I move into this role of president of AOTA. And I have a 13-year-old daughter who knows way too much about politics, right? She's (laughs) like, I don't really understand why you guys are called presidents. I mean, it's not like you're making any laws. And I'm like, so true, kiddo. So (laughs) So true. So like this idea that there's a comparison between the government and the way the US government works or any kind of governmental body and what the role of AOTA board of directors and presidency is, is really a a comparison of not even just apples and oranges, but like apples and zebras, right? (laughs) Um, We're we're not the same. We are there to really be this voice that can represent that the strategic 
planning and initiatives of the association are moving in a direction that's representative of our profession. We are there to be listeners, to be ambassadors, to be representatives of who and what occupational therapy is. We do have a fiduciary responsibility to uh, the profession and to the organization to also ensure that we're making the right decisions and we're making meaningful ones. I would love for us to move into a place where the term PCP, which was pre-ACA, primary care physician, post-ACA, supposed to be primary care provider, I'd love it for it to be PCOTP, primary (laughs) care occupational therapy professional, right? I think that would be outstanding. But I also know that that can't be where we dump all of AOTA's right. soul and initiatives because that's just not feasible at this point. And, and it's not meaningful to ensure that the profession is situated to where it needs to be so that we can all continue to do what we love to do. So, you know, the role is really to hear, to engage, to be a vital member of the occupational therapy community, and then to have the opportunity to bring that forward so that strategically, from a large big picture level, AOTA is able to support the profession in the way it needs to be supported meaningfully. So I don't get to create laws. There's no (laughs) real power. There's actually no power associated with it. It truly is the definition of service leadership. You are there not to assert power or dominance. You're there to serve and to do that in a meaningful ambassador type way. And I think you talk about that fiduciary responsibility, like managing to a certain extent the budget, looking at where are we spending our money. And I think the benefit and also the downside of OT, right, is that we're so broad. We cover the lifespan. We cover mental health. We cover physical disabilities. We cover cognition. We cover this whole umbrella of tasks, which is part of why I personally picked the profession because you have a buffet of options when it comes to employment, but that also makes it really challenging because we don't just have, like they say, in anytime you start a business, which you know, and now I know that you have to pick a niche, right? It's not a good idea to start a business and be both pediatric and older adults, and maybe you will throw some hospice in there. You know, you can't do all of it, right? You have to pick one thing. But yet at AOTA, because we're representing a profession that is all things, it's so hard to pick which one takes priority. And even Heather and I talked about that, Heather Parsons, in our last podcast of getting the biggest bang for your buck. We'd love to be in every legislation everywhere, but we don't always have that kind of money. And so I think this leads into kind of some of the common misconceptions that we see about AOTA, because we know that we pay our dues, right? And so we want what we want out of the association. And you know, we were talking that I see a lot of this misconception that AOTA doesn't engage in enough advocacy or that they're not truly representing the profession. And I know even just as a student in a more benign way, I assume that AOTA was run entirely by OTs because I just thought, well, the American Occupational Therapy Association obviously is run by occupational therapy practitioners. Obviously, I got there as a fieldwork student and realized that is definitely not the case, which is good, right? You want people who know finances to be in charge of finances and those sorts of things. And so what are some of the misunderstandings that people have about AOTA? What are some things that they either sometimes or often might get wrong about the association as a whole and what their role is? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that we hear a lot is that AOTA is 
a member-driven organization. And taking that word away makes a lot of people feel very terrified, right? Like, no, no, Mm -hmm. as a member, I drive the organization. Right. What I really see AOTA as is a profession-driven organization that is member-influenced. Like you said, we are a broad profession. If we were member-driven only, we would never accomplish anything. We cannot be all things to all people as occupational therapy professionals, although we're actually trained to be all things to all people, (laughs) which seems like such a chaotic sort of conflict, right? We're trained to be all things to all people, but But in order to truly be effective in our work, we can't be all things to all people. You know, I'm board certified in pediatrics. There are an incredible amount of things that I do in the world of pediatrics that I am certain I could transform and utilize in the world of the aging adult. I I do it Mm -hmm. with my parents, with my in-laws, I did it, (laughs) right? But in my world of day-to-day practice, I would exhaust myself Mm -hmm. and burn out if I truly implemented my occupational therapy lens to all people in all places. We can't. Likewise, as a member, I can't drive the profession and also think that 65, 70,000 other members are also driving the profession (laughs) or, or driving the organization. Because then the organization is literally going in 70,000 different ways. So I really think one of the misconceptions is is a very language type thing. And and it's the idea that we are profession driven. We are driven by the profession of occupational therapy, ensuring that occupational therapy is represented where it needs to be represented, ensuring that occupational therapy is not losing its value, its relevance, or its position. And that's not just in the places that we are and always have been, but in the places where we need to be. It is profession-driven in that people are defining us in the correct manner, that people are correctly applying innovation as well as transformation in a way that is true and pure. It is recognizing that in order to practice this profession, you do need to have a commitment to a body of ethics and ethical principles that uh, best practices need to be vetted somewhere so that they are best practices and not just practices, right? And so that's done through the influence of each and every individual member. So yes. 70,000 influences are making sure that AOTA is profession driven. But I would say that that's probably one of the largest ones is that I can't as a member make every decision or even be a part of every decision, but I can influence that this association is absolutely representing how I see this profession. Yeah. And I think that gets into this topic that I've thought about and I've had others bring up to me is this idea of like this passion fatigue, right? Like we are such passionate clinicians, right? We love what we do. And I think there's also a certain element that when you look at occupational therapy, I think we often tend to see ourselves as caregivers, right? We like to help people. You know, no one goes to be an OT because they hate working with people every day, right? We're a creative bunch. We're a passionate bunch. And so I think there can be a lot of this 
fatigue in terms of always being asked to do more because we're so passionate about it. And I think, again, you talk about being pulled in a thousand different directions. It's really hard to pick a passion and it's really hard to get involved. And I think that brings up the good point of AOTA looking more at the profession because I think we also feel this idea of, well, I have to get involved. And if we were truly fully member driven, we would need every single member to dedicate X amount of hours in order to get things done, right? Like I think about that in terms of advocacy, when we're looking at all the bills that come before Congress, as an individual person, I don't have the time to go through every single bill, see which ones impact OT, write up a letter about it to tell everybody else, right? And I can't delegate that to five other members to make sure they do it, which is why I love having AOTA because for my a little over $200 a year, I get all those bonuses plus more, which is a bill I'm willing to pay time and time again. So I think, how do we both get people involved in advocacy and assertiveness with advocacy, but then also inversely, how do we think AOTA and others can support advocacy efforts without also additionally asking for more hours out of our already busy days? Yeah. So I think that one of the most important things to recognize is that Your membership is a way to do that without Mm -hmm. adding any additional hours to your day. Our federal affairs staff at AOTA are literally some of the most passionate, brilliant, informed, committed, incredible humans I've ever had the honor of meeting, interacting with, and engaging with. And I do hope that if you are a member or if you're not a member, you I just ask that you reach out and talk to Heather Parsons mm-hmm. or or Sharmila Sandu or Abe Safer, Jill Ty. Just just have a conversation with them. I mean, yeah, it's amazing, right? And on top of that, our practice team is unbelievable, yes. right? Unbelievable. Like I think about the work of Julie Malloy and and Scott Trudeau, and I'm floored at the brilliance and the commitment and the passion. I think I'm passionate. And then, then I spend time with these individuals and, and I'm refueled in my own passion. And so your membership supports their ability to work for our organization. And your membership also then supports opportunities for them to not just work for us, but then to take that work outside of our profession and mm-hmm. share it with members on the Hill. I don't think many people recognize how difficult it is to engage members on the Hill. It's not just about the idea of having a meeting or creating a meeting or establishing a meeting. It's it's about creating long-standing relationships. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that it's not just a long-standing relationship with one person, right? It's the long-standing relationship with that legislator and then key people in their staff. Um, yeah. It's about name recognition. I never think about the idea that sometimes legislators are more willing to create uh, relationships and move legislation forward with AOTA because of the track record that AOTA has with getting really solid legislation moved forward. We've been on bills that have passed and legislators see that as meaningful. Wait a minute, these OT folk right? They create good (laughs) legislation. Let's invite them in. These are really difficult relationships to make. These are beyond a meeting. These are beyond a letter. These are beyond a phone call. These are beyond a vote. This is intensive. 
time intensive, relationship intensive meetings that have to happen. And just by being a member, I'm creating an avenue in which we can employ those individuals who are so eloquent and expert at doing it to do it. And we're giving them the financial backing and resources that they need so that they can do their job well in all the places that they need to do it. So sometimes to enhance advocacy, all we need to do is be a member of AOTA and our state association. And that's good. That's that's giving us the resources that we need. And, And it doesn't add much. You know, I think other ways is really thinking about how we can contribute to the conversations and how we can make visiting things like the legislative action page, Mm -hmm. just part of our daily routine. We build routines all the time for individuals, for consumers, for even our own selves and family members. (laughs) Why not build this into our routine? What's going on? How do I become aware of that? Is there something simple that I can do? And then how do I bring the questions? You know, in Pennsylvania, we're having a pretty substantial issue with a Mm -hmm. large reimburser. And AOTA has been incredible, as well as the Pennsylvania Occupational Therapy Association, in supporting movement, supporting at least the conversations in a very (laughs) well-informed and meaningful way. But this happened because there is an incredible member of AOTA and POTA. She's been a member for a lot of years, and she saw this coming. She's a practice Mm -hmm. owner in Pennsylvania saw this coming down the pike, saw some things that just didn't sound usual or familiar. And she reached out to POTA and AOTA and said, this doesn't sound right. Help. Yeah. And they said, absolutely. I will. And so another way that you can really advocate is take a look. Are there things happening that just don't feel familiar or right? You know, is there a change in a, in a contract that you're receiving as a private practice owner? Does reimbursement look weird? Are you being told that you can't bill for codes that you've always billed for? Is there a productivity standard that for some reason feels off? Is there a change in something that you're doing day in and day out that just doesn't feel right to you? Not saying that it's wrong, but I'm saying the first place you can go to to advocate is just go pose the question to AOTA. They'll respond. And when they respond, that is a trickle effect into a high level of advocacy. So whereas we have this practice owner and PA who recognized something felt wrong or off with a contract, where she on her own would have had to contribute 30, 40 plus hours a week to understanding mm-hmm. this, pulling resources, trying to get meetings, she now is able to say, hey, one hour a week, can we just recap on where this is going? Tell me how I can inform participation in the meetings and reading over some emails. So really, by participating in advocacy through AOTA, you're actually reducing the number of hours that you have to spend in this type of work. And in 2014 or 15, I wrote a, an article that was in AJOT, and it was advocacy is an obligation of every Mm -hmm. single occupational therapy professional. So if you look and say, well, I don't have time for any advocacy in my role. I have have all these things I'm doing. I challenge you in two ways. One, you probably are advocating. You just don't realize it. You're advocating in a a different way or in a very Mm client-centric way. So I would challenge you to find the ways that you are advocating. 
But two, if you can't, then I would challenge you to find a way too, because as an occupational therapy professional, it's your obligation. Advocacy is in our practice framework. You need to know how to do this and you need to integrate it into your day-to-day. Yeah, and I always say that, you know, being an OT is never a given, right? There's been a lot of legislation that doesn't necessarily go through, but gets proposed that could really threaten our reimbursement or threaten our license. And you talk about that credibility piece. I I think that's 100% right. You know, one practitioner is not necessarily going to be who Blue Cross Blue Shield listens to or Aetna or Medicare or Humana or whoever we're talking to. But when it comes from AOTA, they do know to a certain extent that AOTA carries the weight of thousands of practitioners. And so your one complaint might make somewhat of a difference. It might go shuffled into some pile, but it does help to have that support. And I think we forget too, that as members, that's one of your member benefits is having access to the experts, having access to our regulatory team, our practice team, because I can't tell you how many times I've emailed someone and said, Hey, I know this is a policy, but I can't figure out where it's at. Can you tell me? And like Jen Bogan Reef will respond in like 30 minutes with like three links to all the places in the regulation where it's listed, right? You know, it's we forget that we have access to these people. And there are plenty of times, I think of a recent, a couple of months ago, I saw that there was a pelvic health bill that was proposed that was talking about the role of PT and pelvic health. I sent it over to Heather and said, hey, just so you know, this bill is in Congress. I saw it posted by a PT on social media. Doesn't look like OT's in it. And she goes, oh, thank you right? Because we're not always looking for all the other bills. And so thanks to advocacy, we talk to those people and should be included in that bill wherever it may end up going or not, you know, but just alerting someone to the fact that there's an issue can really make a big difference. Are you ready to take your occupational therapy practice to the next level? Then look no further than the Amplify OT membership. You heard that right. Amplify OT has its very own membership program. This membership is designed to help occupational therapy practitioners just like you stay informed about the latest developments in Medicare and advocacy. You will have exclusive access to resources, webinars, the Mastering OT Policy and Medicare course, Q&A sessions, plus the ability to DM me your questions and get answers fast. But of course, that is not all. As a member, you'll be part of a community of like-minded occupational therapy practitioners who share their expertise and offer support. So by joining the Amplify OT membership, you'll be able to stay up to date on the latest Medicare regulations and guidelines, learn how to advocate for your patients and your profession, connect with other OT practitioners and students to share your knowledge, and you'll have access to those exclusive resources and webinars so you can reach your full potential as an OT provider. So don't miss out on this opportunity to take your practice to the next level. Sign up for the Amplify OT membership today by going to the link in the show notes or amplifyot.com forward slash membership. Don't forget to stay informed and be the change that you want to see in our healthcare system. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by MedBridge, your go-to resource for advancing your occupational therapy career and, of course, getting those necessary CEUs. If you are passionate about staying at the forefront of our field and enhancing your skills, MedBridge is a comprehensive solution. With the MedBridge subscription, you gain access to an extensive library of high-quality live and recorded courses led by industry experts. So stay up to date with the latest advancements in occupational therapy, explore evidence-based practice, and enhance your clinical skills. 
One reason that I really like and recommend MedBridge is because they have both intervention-based courses and policy and reimbursement-based courses, and that is a rare find in a CEU company. But here's the best part for our OT amplifiers community. If you use the promo code AMPLIFYOT at checkout, you'll unlock an exclusive 40% discount on your MedBridge subscription. Yes, you heard that right, 40% off with the code AMPLIFYOT, that's A-M-P-L-I-F-Y-O-T. This is a fantastic opportunity to save some money, elevate your practice, and support AmplifyOT. So don't miss out on this chance to supercharge your professional development and head over to medbridge.com, use the promo code AmplifyOT, and enjoy the benefits of MedBridge while also supporting AmplifyOT and all the free resources that we produce here, like this podcast. So again, head to medbridge.com, use the code AmplifyOT at checkout, and we also have the link for you in the show notes. You know, there's a lot of language about how do we talk about advocacy, and I think we talk a lot about the need to protect the profession. And I'm curious, why do you think using that terminology is really important? Or are there other ways that we should think and talk about advocacy in a, maybe in a different way? Or is protecting the profession really you know, the number one way that we need to be thinking about it? I think protecting the profession is incredibly important when we think of advocacy. I think there are many threats to not just occupational therapy, but, but many of the healthcare-related professions. You know, and, and one of the things that we often look at is, are there places that our distinct value is being taken away from us? right? So what is the benefit of having an occupational therapy professional over a social worker in a outpatient psychological rehab center, right? Like, what is the benefit of ensuring that you have representation of the occupational therapy professional, as well as your physical therapy professionals, especially if both are going to be able to work on ADLs, right? Things like this. So, so yes, we have threats in the idea that other professions feel threats also. And so they are expanding into using language that we have predominantly used and owned for a long time, which Mm -hmm. threatens our distinct value. So it's important to know that, to recognize that, and to see that on a broad national level, as well as a state level. So what you have uniquely in AOTA is this opportunity to see it at the national level But then also through our state affairs, through Chuck Wilmarth and his team, Julie Leinhardt, who's been knocking it out of the park with us here in PA, what you have is the opportunity to evaluate it from a national level, as well as a state level, hearing the input from state association presidents, as well as those members of the representative assembly with a great team that's really analyzing all of that information. The other threat that we I think is sneaking up on us that we don't always recognize is this threat of, okay, well, if we diminish reimbursement for your services, nobody's going to want to be an occupational therapy professional, or no one will want to have that profession because reimbursement won't be reflective of what you need to be paid, right? It'll become too high of a cost, too high of an expense. And we see that through recent Medicare movements and Mm -hmm. even this this potential four and a half. I mean, we've done great work in reducing the percentage cut cost of reimbursement at Medicare, but we're still looking at a four and a half percent potential reduction in reimbursement, right? Right. We see this in what I said right now and what we're experiencing in Pennsylvania with a private payer. 
they not only wanted to reduce by half, more than half in some instances, what occupational therapy professionals were being reimbursed for OT services. But in addition to that, because there was no occupational therapy representative in the group that was creating the reimbursement, but there was physical therapy representation, Mm -hmm. we were at $20 lower than what physical therapy was being reimbursed. So then as a practice owner, if I already think that PT can cover those ADLs and that distinct value of occupational therapy, and I'm going to get paid more for the PT, then why not just hire on the PTs, right? So there's a lot of place that, that, yes, we absolutely still need to be protected. And I will say that one of the most incredible wins that has come out of this conversation with this private payer in Pennsylvania is that there is an exact equal amount reimbursed for PT and OT now, which is a win, right? Now they're not going to say that PT is more valuable because we get paid more. We actually, now they have recognized and readjusted the rates not to where we want them to be, but to a place that at least we are of equal reimbursement rate to the PT. Look, that wouldn't have happened without the work of AOTA's incredible experts and POTA Mm -hmm. joining forces with a private practice owner in the area. You know, I think there's other things that we need to think about though too, and that's the opportunities. We are in a world that has truly been in an experience that is incomparable to anybody's lived experiences. This idea of not just a health pandemic, but the social injustices that Mm -hmm. continue to arise, in addition to this just global relationship that can happen with much freer access than we've ever known before, this is emerging to me even more so why occupational therapy needs to not just be protected, but promoted Mm -hmm. as a solution that we just haven't tapped into. People are saying, what do we do now? Mental health crises are overflowing, abundant, and our traditional mental health and behavioral health practitioners are so burnt out, overtaxed, and overburdened. We don't know how to protect the mental health of our nations anymore, right? Well, Have you ever included occupational therapy in that protection (laughs) plan, right? We're seeing things like the emergence of new and different crises plans. You know, no longer in the school are you just looking at fire drills. You're looking at shooter drills. Mm -hmm. But what does an active shooter drill look like for a child that is ambulatory versus a child that uses a wheelchair for mobility versus a child who is so overwhelmed by sudden movements or changes in routine, right? How do we create meaningful drills that truly protect our children? We need to incorporate occupational therapy in that. There is so much opportunity that not only do we need to talk about advocacy in the idea of protecting our profession, we need to talk about advocacy in the role of promoting our profession Mm -hmm. and opportunities that are desperate, desperate for our input. Um, And so I think that there's not one that's more important than the other, but I think that they are equally, to use uh, President Wendy Hildebrand's words, urgent. We must respond with urgency to both protecting our profession but promoting it in the opportunities that exist. 
Yeah, it's kind of like you got to put out fires on both sides. We can't tend to just one and not the other. And I think there's also, I think sometimes within occupational therapy, there's this taboo around admitting that we want to get paid for the work that we do or that maybe we shouldn't put up the fight when our toes are stepped on. And I think we often, you know, I've proposed this way to therapists before. They're like, well, you know, my business said X, Y, and Z, like that, you know, uh, not to bash on PT, obviously we love our PT colleagues, but also that, oh, well, PT is going to start doing this. And they're like, well, I don't know if I should say anything. I'm like, well, think about it the other way around. If they flipped that and told the PTs that OT was going to start doing this, do you think they'd just take it laying down? I bet you they wouldn't, right? You know, so we think about these different scope creeps or times where our toes are stepped on or reimbursement or even just pay. And I think there's just such a taboo around talking about it. And I think it's okay, right? It's okay to say, I want to make money and I want to keep the protection of my practice as well as access patients, right? Because patients won't have access to us if we don't exist. Right, right. So I think this is a great point, but I think it brings up this idea that we are a profession that has cared, I believe. And, and I will say this, I am an interdisciplinary um, mm-hmm. clinician to my core. I truly believe that health and wellness is experienced through a team, not an individual. Right. And so I love being that. But I, I will say that I do believe that occupational therapy as a profession has cared more about access than any other profession. And there does seem to be conflict in making money, being profitable, and the idea of access, right? Right. So one of the reasons that we opened our clinic was because in our rural area, there were not pediatric-specific clinics. And I didn't want to create a clinic that said, hey, I can go to this clinic and not have to drive as far as going into one of the larger urban areas, so that's great. I wanted to create a clinic for my neighbors that said, hey, I want to go to this clinic even more than the ones in the urban settings because (laughs) these clinicians are innovative and and they're bringing best practice and new practice and meaningful practice to me. But that also meant that I had to be, in order to bring that to my neighbors, Mm -hmm. a clinic that could accept Medicaid reimbursement because- Over 80% of my clients have Medicaid as their reimbursement source. And that's a really low reimburser. And so there was a part that says, as the occupational therapist as I am, I I feel guilty in that, how can I make money? Because I want there to be access. And access often doesn't, if I want it to be for everyone, doesn't always result in the highest reimbursement. Right. I think we have to flip that conversation. We can create access and still be profitable. Mm -hmm. I can ensure that my neighbors are getting what they need while advocating that Medicaid needs to recognize the high level of complexity that goes into occupational therapy interventions, evaluations, consultations, and the incredible outcomes that happen when we do that. So yes, I want to be able to, and I do, I want to take Medicaid so that my neighbors can have access, but I also want Medicaid to recognize that I am valuable and that you better increase the amount that you're reimbursing me for, that I am producing outcomes that are in essence, saving you money. 
So I think we have to switch. We have to move to this place that says financial resources exist Mm -hmm. and they don't exist to everyone. Right. But I can advocate and move to a place where I am both able to provide access without barriers and be paid what I should be paid for. When you look at our education standards, inclusive not only in our didactic learning, but as well as our hands-on clinical learning, Mm -hmm. we blow out of the water any other standards for any other healthcare provider. There is no one else that is required to show competency in the number of things that we need to show competency. Mm, Yeah. What that should mean is not, oh, OTs are everything to everybody. Oh, that occupational therapy professional, you know, oh, those OTAs, they just, they can do a little bit of everything, right? What that should be saying is, my goodness, what a brilliant, complex, high level and important Mm -hmm. and meaningful service occupational therapy is. It requires our occupational therapy assistants and our occupational therapists, our occupational therapy scientists, our occupational therapy educators, our occupational therapy students. (laughs) It requires all of them to have such a grand amount of competency that obviously this should be reimbursed at a high rate. Clearly, there is a knowledge and expertise that exists in this community that is so profound that we need to reimburse it for what it's worth. It brings me to the idea of why I went to law school. And I was working in North Carolina. And in North Carolina, there's at that time, there were, you know, I think maybe two occupational therapy programs. Mm -hmm. So occupational therapy was in high demand. Well, I was working there. I was working in a pediatric outpatient site and I had had the great benefit of, of doing a clinical rotation in a hand therapy center. So I, mm-hmm. I knew how to splint, but I was kid focused. So I also knew how to navigate the, the experiences and behaviors of children and <laughs> I knew how to splint. So I became the person that you went to in my area for if your child needed a splint or casting or anything like that. In Medicare, CMS came down with a rule that said only orthotists would be reimbursed Mm. for splint fabrication. And so I would go with my consumers, my clients, my kiddos to the orthotist. I would fabricate the splint or I would produce the activity and participation necessary so that they could be fitted for um, a, a splint. And the orthotist would be reimbursed and I would be patted on the back for doing a really like how kind it was. Good job. Was yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, that service part of, that lives that service heart that lives mm-hmm. in every single occupational therapy professional felt good about it because I knew that my kiddos were getting the right splints and were, were having outcomes. And I had a really good friend at the time who said to me, who actually was a lawyer and said to me, you know what you're doing, you're devaluing your profession. What? These kids couldn't get the right splint without me. How could I possibly be devaluing it? And he said, because why should I pay for it? If you'll do it for free. free. (laughs) Exactly. And it really changed everything for me. I thought my service heart is actually devaluing the profession that I love. 
it's not about saying, if I ask for this payment, this reimbursement, I'm blocking access. It's about saying there's no reason access should be blocked because you should be paying me what I need. Right. Yeah. And so I think we all need to think about what that looks like in our day to day. How does that influence our advocacy? How does that influence our language and how we talk about it? How does that influence how we communicate with our consumers so that they understand they love us, right? Our consumers come back to us again and again. I rarely hear someone say, oh, I wish I never participated in occupational therapy. (laughs) No one's ever, they they might come out and say, oh, I wish I never had that knee surgery, but they never say, I wish that occupational therapy session never happened. So we need to be communicating this in a way that doesn't say, if you don't have the financial resources as an individual, you can't have our services. We need to be communicating it as our services are expensive for good reason, but they're also necessary for every human to have. And so this government, this payment source, this reimbursement healthcare system needs to figure out how to give us what we deserve. Yeah, and I've been told that I need to ask you about your lawyer brain and how that lawyer brain interacts with the occupational therapy brain. I think that really kind of helps sum it up. So I want you to talk about that as well. But I know it's such a good point, right, about devaluing our services because we think, and I think that's part of that taboo, right, of wanting to get paid for something. I think I find a lot of practitioners end up almost underbilling for their time because we think, oh, well, I don't want them to have to pay for it. Or I know they're going to have a copay and I don't know that that's really fair to them. So I'm just not going to bill for it, which occasionally can actually be illegal, but that's a whole other podcast. But we, you know, I think we underbill because we underestimate our value. We underestimate our skills because we do also tend to be a humble bunch. And so when I think, well, that's just obvious, right? All I did was walk into the bathroom. All I did was help them put on their shoes. But You know, would someone off the street, would your parent, your brother, your sister, whoever done it the same way that you did? And the answer is almost always, well, no, right? Because we see other professionals take patients to the bathroom. We see other professionals help someone get dressed. And it always looks different from how an occupational therapy practitioner might do it. And I think that's part of that learning your value is learning how to articulate your skill. If you can't tell me why you should be paid over someone else, like an orthotist or a nurse assistant or someone else, then I'm not going to pay you. Because if I can pay someone else who's cheaper, why pay an OT or an OTA? And so I think that's part of that. Yeah, you're right. Providing our services for free can absolutely devalue our skills. And so it's finding that balance while recognizing that there is an access issue while also advocating for it to be paid in the first place and for there not to be an access issue. Yeah. That's a great question. So, you know, I always tell the story when I first started law school, you know, the first year you take a a legal writing class Mm -hmm. and I submitted my first memo draft and I, the, my professor asked to meet with me, she met with everybody after their first memo draft and I came in and she had actually practiced as a NICU nurse prior to going back to law school. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lawyer. And uh, she said to me, Allison, you are a brilliant medical writer. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, I'm nailing this. Like, (laughs) here I am. Like, I didn't even know if I should be here. And I wrote my first memo and I am like, I was pregnant at the time. I was pregnant, going through a divorce, working at children's hospital, going to (laughs) law school, 
living with parents again, right? Like all the things. And I thought, I knocked it out of the park. And so I like take a breath and I'm about to smile. And she says, you are a terrible legal. <laughs> oh, no. And then I said, oh, uh, and that's when I learned that I really was going to be challenged and having mm-hmm. a whole new thought process. One of the greatest lessons I learned was being comfortable in consequences. That's one yeah. of the things I learned from law school. And that was, I had a brilliant mentor, two mentors in law school that, that forever changed my life. One was the Dean at the time, Mary Crossley, who is now serving on the board with us. She is brilliant and fiercely recognized how both the healthcare system and the legal system needed to work together so that we did not continually perpetuate the impairment in health and wellness because of social determinants of health. She's brilliant and changed my life. Also, Stella Smetanka, who was the attorney that led our health law clinic, who also changed my life. I never thought it was easy to find my OT mentors because I already thought that way. I never thought I would find those kind of relationships in the legal world, Mm -hmm. and I did. And I will forever be grateful for the two of them. But Stella Smetanka said to me, and she was brilliant, and she also had much of a service heart. She said to me, can you sue without a consequence? And I said, I don't, I don't know what you mean. And she said, so if there is something that, that just doesn't feel right, that's mm-hmm. wrong, but there's no consequence no action to base your claim. Can you sue? And I said, well, no, there has to be something to sue over. And she said, if something unfair happens to you, but you can't prove what the damages to you were, can you be reimbursed for the damages? So if you are discriminated against in your job place, and it's clear, but you still have your job, you didn't seek out any health care for your mental wellness. Your household didn't suffer in any capacity. You probably internally were suffering and it was wrong. It was a wrong that happened, but you have no yeah. damages you can prove. What happens? Right? Nothing. Yeah, nothing. So she said, why are you so afraid of the consequences when OT doesn't happen the way it needs to happen for the person it needs to? Because mm-hmm. you'll never be able to make change. There's no action to write if we don't see the wrong. She said, so it's going to be a tough road, but I actually think you need to evaluate and be denied services for that individual that, yeah, it's going to be a rough road, but you need the denial before you can prove that there should have never been a denial in the first place. Yeah. You need the client to feel overwhelmed and encumbered by their inability to access what they find valuable in you and their financial obligation if they continue. You know, she said, if someone recognizes your value, but then insurance turns around and says, but you're going to have to pay $120 every time you see that person or $80 every time you see that person. Yeah, for a moment, that person's not going to have access. But that person is also now giving you a consequence in which you both can move forward and say, 
And now look what happens when they don't have access right. to the financial barrier. Right. Um, and so I, I think that that's one of the ways that my legal brain influences my OT brain often is this idea that to not be afraid of the consequences. I need an action in order to make a change. I can't tell you what the picture would look like in a perfect world if I can't show you what the picture looks like without the perfect. Without it, yeah. The other way it changed my brain was, so one of the reasons my memo was so terrible is that I oversighted legal precedent. And my professor at the time said to me, why do you have so many court cases in here? And I said, (laughs) because I was very thorough in what in our OT world is referred to as a lit search. I was very thorough and I needed to make sure that I was representing all the literature that was out there. And she said, that's ridiculous. Why are you not just representing the literature that supports your argument? She said, I don't, I don't care that another court, did you have one court that ruled in favor and set a legal precedent? Well, yes. Did you have two others? Well, yes. Do you still believe that your opinion is the correct opinion? Well, yes. Then why do you want the judge to even care about these things that say it's not the right opinion? Don't do that. (laughs) Look for what you know supports the decision. Inform yourself. Never form an opinion without doing this kind of lit search, right? She says this this is absolutely the lit search that you do to form your opinion, to ensure that you are making the right decision. But after you make the right decision... You don't report out your process for making the right decision. You report out that that supports the right decision. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I never thought about that. We are continuously documenting the entirety of our process instead of the outcome. She said, let the people question your process and then bring this forward. Don't reveal your process ahead of time. And I thought, this is outstanding. I never thought about that. So have our process. Yes, have our in-depth, evidence-based, clinical, judgment, reasoning process. Yes, don't eliminate that. Just don't share it until you need to. (laughs) Um, And you know what? She said, and when you don't share it till you need to, what you'll find is that people won't question your process. People question it now because you show them the whole way. You can get them stuck on a question that you were stuck on. They don't need to be stuck on that question because you found the path out of it. Don't show them your path there. Just show them your result and let them ask about the path. And so being comfortable in the consequences and revealing my outcome without my process happens to be two of the ways that I have really checked my OT brain with my legal brain. Oh, I think those are such great stories and definitely kind of change how we tend to think about some of those issues because yeah you're right we do tend to share everything that we're thinking or talking through the whole process and why we didn't choose x y or z and you know really we just need to show what supports that we have because there's always going to be a different opinion there's always going to be some research article that found what wasn't what you wanted but i think that comes back to this idea that evidence-based practice is about so much more than just journal articles it's about looking at the patient because oftentimes right journal articles are very very restrictive in who they can consider. And so just because it might be best practice for that specific individual doesn't mean that it's always best practice for the person that's sitting in front of you. And so I think that's, I think that's fantastic. And I love how that ties together and gets us really thinking about 
you know, what is our role and how do we justify services? And I, and I love that idea of the consequences, right? Because sometimes we have these new codes. I think we had the same issue with like a cognition code, right? We knew that it got approved to be reimbursed, but then it was getting denied, but we couldn't, we couldn't force insurers to change their policy to show that it was reimbursed if no one was billing for it in the first place, right? We had the same issue with PDPM. We couldn't prove that OTs were providing cognitive intervention because it wasn't documented or it wasn't showing that it wasn't getting reimbursed. And so then if the data is not there to support it, why make a change? And so I love, I, I think that's really important to kind of get, get comfortable with where there's going to be pushback. We talk about productivity, right? If we don't show that too high of productivity decreases patient care, then why change it? If we just keep putting in more free hours, then what's the benefit to the company to fix it? Like, well, if you're just going to put in the time on your own clock, then why should I do anything about it? Right. And, and in reality, I have the tendency to believe that the world is not inherently malicious. Right, right. right? So what we don't understand is that they actually don't know what the consequences are because we're protecting them from them, mm -hmm. right? And so, yeah, there's a lot of times that you have to say things like, build that cognition code that's going to be rejected, but only do cognitive interventions when you're building the code and it's going right. to get rejected. But then also you have this great ability to show when I build the code and I do the intervention, there are these incredible outcomes. Right. When I don't build the code and I'm not doing the intervention, we see declines in how the individual is able to participate or demonstrate independence in certain levels or areas. We have to stop protecting the world from the consequence. We have to let them see what happens when they don't let us do our job and don't reimburse us for it. Well, I think that is a fantastic point to wrap up our conversation. And I think we've hit a lot of really key points that I hope people take home. And so to wrap up, my final question for you is what goals do you have for yourself and for your time at AOTA as AOTA's president? For myself, it's growth. It's always growth. I continuously look and have had the great opportunity thus far in this first six months to expand how I know and understand occupational therapy as a profession. I continue to want to evolve how I understand and represent this profession. And I want to evolve into channeling my passions so that they are meaningful and effective. My other goal is to sort of twofold. It's for myself so that it can be for others. And that's to really demonstrate that leadership is not an aha moment. Mm -hmm. I know I can do this for an individual that meets it at the perfect timing. It's not the aha moment at the perfect timing. I've got a senior in high school who's graduating and is fairly certain he knows more than me about everything. Well, of course. Of course. And I'm trying to be present for every single basketball game and every single team dinner because he's, he's never going to have a high school basketball again, again, right? Right. I've got a 13-year-old who is either going to rule this world for good or for evil. I'm not sure. <laughs> but she's brilliant and she's courageous and she still likes her mom. And so I'm trying to show up and be present with her. Mm -hmm. And I've got a husband who is sort of like my own personal OT and that he never lets me have balls. But I need to be present 
for him because after this presidency, they're still my life. Right. I work at my clinic and I want that clinic to grow and continue to be able to serve more and more people. And I have uh, staff at that clinic that I love and I want to grow and develop their skills and opportunities and abilities. I am an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh, a school that gave me so much that I desire nothing more than to give back to them. I have a lot, right? Yeah. I've got parents, I've got nieces, nephews, siblings, right? Like, so my goal for me is to figure out this world of balance mm -hmm. and then to be able to show the rest of our community that it's not just a goal that we can make for others. It's a goal we need to have for ourselves. Yeah. Practice it for ourselves. That's sort of my, my bridge goal, a goal for me and a goal in my time in AOTA presidency is to reflect that so that others can find ways to reflect, engage and reflect in it as well. My goal for AOTA in these next three years is huge. I think there's an incredible team, but my goal is that I know that we are going to a place of extreme change. Mm -hmm. um, I know that our healthcare system as is, is not going to be able to continue to function. Right. But there are going to be drastic and dramatic changes that happen. And my goal is that occupational therapy is represented, respected, and invited to be the assertive leader in the discovery and development of what healthcare looks like in the United States from now on. Not just healthcare, but wellness care, prevention care, mental health care. My goal is that the rest of our nation recognizes that we cannot create a plan for human sustainability, for human meaningfulness, without not just including occupational therapy, but recognizing and inviting it to be a leader. Well, I think that is perfect. I love that. I think it's great. I love, you know, showing that the balance, because that's all we're doing, right? All that occupational balance that we talk about. So thank you so much, Allison, for being on my podcast, for talking to us today and sharing all these different stories and words of wisdom. Um, I'm looking forward to, I was going to say the rest of your reign, but that's not quite right, is it? No, <laughs> the rest of I your- I kind of like that. I kind of like that. <laughs> the rest of your uh, term. I guess yeah. will be a better term for uh, for what we've got coming up. So thank you again so much. And I look forward to seeing you in the future. Yes, thank you. This has been outstanding. I follow your podcast. I hope <laughs> everyone does. Thank you. Um, and thank you. Your work in this world and your voice that you give our profession, it's beyond inspirational. So thanks for having me. It's been a privilege and an honor. Thank you so much, Allison. If you made it this far, I want to just take a moment to say thank you so much for listening to the Amplify OT podcast, and I hope you're feeling a little more inspired and prepared to amplify your value and the value of occupational therapy. If you found yourself at any point thinking, gosh, I guess policy isn't that dull and boring, then you're definitely going to love how we talk about policy and advocacy in the Amplify OT membership. There's a link in the show notes where you can sign up today so you can take an immediate next step towards emerging as a confident clinician. And of course, don't forget to follow the Amplify OT podcast so that way you never miss an episode. And you know, while you're there, why don't you go ahead and leave us a five-star review because that's the best way to help others find the podcast too. 
And of course, thank you so much to Jessica Riccio for editing this podcast and for all of you for giving me a reason to record it. You're now officially part of the OT Amplifier community and you are now prepared to go out there and advocate for OT because remember, if we don't advocate for occupational therapy, then who will?